It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I am Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today we have another real exciting chapter. Today we are going to talk about the whiteness of the whale. I I realize that this is going to sound completely ludicrous, but I really do think this will be a quick a quick episode. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> so this. I, no, I I said I realize this is going to sound foolish. I I'm willing to put myself out there. Well, okay. So I mean. Here's the thing. We can summarize this chapter very briefly and succinctly if we want to, uh, which is just that Ishmael spends several thousand words uh, trying to explain why it's so scary that the whale is white and doesn't really succeed. Yeah, uh, that's that's broadly the summary. And he lists white things. Yes, yes. His method of explaining is mostly to list white things. Um this is another one of those chapters where writing the summary required a lot of effort because he has not... It is one of those cases where the way that Ishmael structured the chapter, the way that Melville structured the chapter, does not lend itself to summary easily. But uh, but we try anyway because we're podcasters, goddammit. <sighs> we are... For our sins, we are... That subtle demonism in the podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, so to get a little more specific, uh, I think it's, it's, it's worth reading the opening sentence because the opening sentence, I think, kind of explains what he thinks he's trying to do here pretty clearly. Uh, what the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What at times he was to me as yet remains unsaid. So this is Ishmael kind of trying to explain what did the white whale mean to me personally? And he's doing it via talking about it, what whiteness means. Yeah, this, um, this chapter actually has a very uh, sort of interesting connection to how I first got into Moby Dick. I think I've mentioned this before, um, that Perhaps our mutual friend James uh, convinced me to give Moby Dick a try again after having bounced off it like twice in uh, high school and college. Um, and basically what he said was he really loved this chapter, which I hadn't even got into this chapter in either of my attempts to read it at that time. And I had, I was like, it's, it's a chapter where he, he lists white things. James, why would this be interesting? And his answer was that basically it's a really great example of Ishmael being completely unable to actually say what he means. Yeah. He's trying really hard to communicate something you can tell, but he's not successfully communicating almost any of it he's in fact i'd say he just manages to list examples and then goes see see like you know like a, he's got a pin board with red string on it and he's wildly gesturing at it and it's it's it obviously ben it's obviously white string on the pin board 
No, the objects are white. The string has to be red so you can see the string. Oh, yeah, all right, that's fair. That's fair. You could also describe the string as being black, by contrast. He, he, he specifies out that the meaning of whiteness is more terrible than the meaning of redness, so I feel like including red <laughs> somehow is, like, going against that. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. You're, he does specifically say that red, you know, one of the most psychodynamic colors, etc., etc., nah, no, it's white. It's, it's all about white, and white is, is scary and also often, like, impressive, but scary. Yeah, I want to stand up for Ishmael here a little bit. I don't think he's totally wrong. I think there is a, a symbolic weight to the color white that is capable of being terrifying. Um, I mean, certainly in his lists of things, he's able to list things that are white and that are, in part, things that are white than that are sort of symbolically terrible I I think we should go through the list and, and, and summarize things and, and we'll listener, you can come to your own conclusion whether the color white is inherently terrible. Yes, that's that's true. It's only correct that I should be a little bit more on Ishmael's side here and you should be a little bit opposed. We've gotta have somebody standing up for him and somebody help somebody holding on to the perspective of the rest of the world, which is Ishmael, it's not scary because it's a white whale. It's scary because it's a well, <laughs> I mean, look, we, we will get into it. There's a bunch of things going on there, but I will say yes. I think I am the more skeptical member of this podcast for Ishmael's thesis here. And uh, I, I'm, in, I'm excited to see where we go with this. Yeah. So uh, starting out with his discussion of whiteness, Ishmael does admit that whiteness is usually or often considered to be a good thing. Um. So he sort of laundry lists a bunch of positive symbolic uses of white here, um, talking about, you know, I mean, it's probably obvious. I don't know how much I need to go into it. And he also lists a bunch of things that are not obvious, but that are, you know, details that would stand out to him. Like he talks about marbles, japonicas, and pearls, which are three things that are considered to be beautiful when they are white. And I mean, three things that are generally considered to be beautiful and especially beautiful when they are white. Um, he does mention, uh, the idea of, of racial whiteness as something that, you know, obviously to him, that's considered to be a good thing. It's considered to be a good thing to be a white person. That's how Ishmael views the world. Um, yeah, I, I think that is something that definitely is brought up in part to complicate it by Melville, but it is certainly the case that when listing white things, Ishmael completely loses his capacity for, like, um, having his own opinion here. All of these are things which are generally considered good when white, and that's how he's listing them. Um, for example, we, we know that he's a, he's a stated anti-monarchist. We know that. Yes. But he lists a number of noble houses as having white banners and white symbolism and uh, white colors as their sort of noble crests as a straightforward example of people think white is good. Yeah, and I think that has to do with, at this point in the story, he is he is listing what you might call, uh, not to totally, uh, you know, hijack a particular term that was used to describe something else, but this is the highest possible layer of discussion of whiteness, right? Is the positive associations. Ishmael considers mm. those to be sort of a the, the false perception that most people have of what whiteness means. I don't know if I would say it's false exactly, but yes, he's, he's listing society considers white things to be good, 
but have you considered there are also white things that are bad? And, yes. And um, I think that does complicate the, you know, straightforward racist statement that is made uh, about, you know, basically white dominion over the globe in, in empire, especially given how much the interrelationship between, uh, you know, Ishmael's sort of binary of white and non-white plays into the structure of the of the Pequod and of the narrative. So I, I guess what I mean is I really think he's stating this is broadly considered to be the case here, not just straightforwardly stating as himself yes. that, you know, white is right. Remember it like racism. Yeah, he, I think that's true. I think the, the, the fact that, like, maybe it's not actually such a good thing to be a white person, maybe it's not actually such a good thing to rule the globe in an empire, I think these are ideas that are present here. But so far in this beginning of this chapter he's just kind of listing things and stating yes. them in uh it's probably worth noting actually as long as we are talking about the racial dynamics of this that he also lists white symbolism in like several religions including yes. you know non-christian religions so yeah uh i wanted to highlight that the, the first way that he brings up religion about it is to say even in the higher mysteries of the most august religions, it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power. And he isn't specific there. He, I don't know what the most august religions are. It might be several different religions are most august to Ishmael. Yeah, I, I really think that for Ishmael, being most august simply means that it's uh, like a long-standing tradition that looks very impressive. Um, he's, as we've seen before, he is very susceptible to religious symbolism, even when it's not his own. Yes, yes. And so, like, his first example is the Persian fire worshippers, uh, by which he means Zoroastrians. Um, he's he's not correct when he says that Zoroastrians worship fire. That's his perception, but... Yeah, fire is considered sacred and closer to the divine, so there's it's, it's a very widespread historical misapprehension. Yes. Um, and, you know white flame is considered at least according to ishmael i don't know enough about zoroastrianism to know if he is actually correct in his description of of white forked flame but at I'm least certainly not going to take a guess on uh which flames are considered best in zoroastrian practices especially given that's a very long and complicated history itself yes and he also refers to uh the he refers to something in iroquois belief which again i have no external source on this, but he talks about the sacrifice of a white dog, uh, considered to be holy. Um, and it's only after listing Persian fire worshippers, the Greek mythologies, the noble Iroquois, that he gets down to whiteness in Christianity. Which, obviously, there are all kinds of uses of whiteness as a positive symbol in Christianity. Um... He lists several of them, including the one of the parts of the, like, investor of priests, the alb, that comes from a Latin word for white. Um, and he's talking about uh, white robes being given to the redeemed in Revelation, talking about um, there's all sorts of associations mm -hmm. of white with positivity in Christianity. Yep. And generally speaking with, um, and I think this is interesting, because he doesn't draw this connection, but a lot of the symbolism that he's talking about is symbolism of purity or simplicity, uh, sort of something being unsullied or untouched. 
Yeah, he doesn't at this point attempt to explain in any way. He just lists. Yes. Um, and, he, and having listed, he says, uh, and, and he does, I think, it's interesting because, yeah, you say purity, and I think purity is a really important thing that white often symbolizes, but he does try to characterize what white symbolizes, and he doesn't use that word. He describes these accumulated associations as being with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, um, which is not the same thing as what is pure. He totally could mm-hmm. have said whatever mm-hmm. is pure there, but he chooses not to. Yeah. I I have some theories on how that works, but uh, we should move on. And I think there'll be more interesting theories once we've gone through the more negative examples of whiteness. Yeah, so his next claim, he's claiming that there, there still lurks something. This is where he gets to the point about white being scarier than red. He says, despite all of this, there still lurks something in whiteness that is which strikes more of panic to the soul than redness. Um, well, even though... specifically, then that redness which affrights in blood. Yes, yeah. So he's saying, okay, despite everything I just told you about how whiteness is associated with, with all this good stuff, uh, there is still something terrifying in it, more terrifying than blood. And that's why, he says, uh, when you have something that is scary in itself and is white... It's extra terrifying, such as a polar bear and a white shark. Yep. Um, Ishmael is very clear that the great white shark is a particularly scary shark because it is white, and not just because it is a, you know, lean, highly evolved murder machine. Yeah, this is the thing that, like, is sort of constantly happening in this chapter that is difficult to totally respond to he'll he'll constantly say oh yes and this is why the polar bear is more terrifying than all other bears and it's like well is it it clearly is to you ishmael <laughs> like on some uh, level the argument that he's making here is just that whiteness is terrifying to ishmael uh yeah i mean we can't so, deny that clearly it is i will say that i think in the case of the polar bear and the great white i mean the great white shark does have a special sort of quality as a shark. It is the shark that we think of as, like, the scariest shark. I think that's fair to say, even now. Um, I mean, it's also the biggest shark that attacks people, so... Yeah. Might be that. But, and similarly, a polar bear is a very large bear. I will say that in this period, in the 1800s, broadly speaking, uh, polar and the polar regions... Wow, I sound like someone from the 1800s. The polar regions were considered to be invested with a greater terror than nearly any other uh, apportionment of the globe. Um, But seriously, they had a very strong sense of terror because at the time, going into the Arctic or Antarctic was not unlikely to kill you of itself. And they were completely unknown regions in a lot of ways. I think it's a considerable amount of time before anyone gets to one of the poles. Um, I'm trying to remember when that happened exactly compared to uh, when this book was published. But the result is that the polar regions and the specific fauna and phenomena of the polar regions had a particular grip on, uh, I mean, on the literary imagination and on the general imagination in these periods. I mean, for a sort of easy example, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, awful racist, terrible person. Um, one of his better stories is At the Mountains of Madness, which is all of, basically mostly about how scary the concept of Antarctica is, and then there's some aliens. Yeah. I think, you know, you say that this is something that's 19th century or that, that you know, is sort of pre-modern, and 
I'm sure you're right that like I wouldn't to, call that pre-modern, but yeah, or not not pre-modern, but before the current moment. Yes, um, and I think you're you're kind of right. Like the sense of the of like the Arctic or the Antarctic as like a totally unexplored region or as a, a mysterious place, I think is not necessarily one that people still have. People are still pretty scared of of those places though, and for good reason. Oh. They are scary. Yeah, no, they are still inhospitable. But at the time, I think that the there's a very easy link to that the idea of the terror of the unknown still lingered around them. And for example, lingered around the polar bear, which was a kind of weird, terrifying thing in that it's a very large bear that you'd get. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's some, there's still things being written where the polar bear is presented as like the most terrifying possible animal in the Arctic regions. Anyways, this is just me sort of riffing on this idea of the polar bear is especially terrifying. I think there's a good literary argument that this was the case when this was written. I don't know if it's still the case. I think that probably our awareness that polar bears are danger endangered um, probably changes how we see them from a nearly invisible killing machine appearing out of a blizzard in the most inhospitable region of the world to uh, kind of adorable fluffy creatures that we'd really like to keep around. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, like, the modern understanding that humanity is in many ways more of a danger to wild animals than vice versa is something that is often a little weird when you're reading Moby Dick, and it really wants you to believe that whales are terrifying monsters who will kill you if they get the chance, when you're like, wait a minute, aren't whales, like, aren't we supposed to be saving those? Yeah, God. Sorry, I just imagined someone saying save the whales to Ishmael and just imagining watching all the emotions going across his face. I feel like he would immediately interpret it in a Christian sense, right? Save the soul of the whales. And he would be like, you can't. It's not possible. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how he feels about that, actually. I I don't know if... That is something we should return to at the end of the book. Does Ishmael think it is possible to save the whales or are they... uh, unutterably reprobate I mean, in their place in nature. A classic Christian understanding would be that animals do not have souls that can be saved in the way that human souls can be. However, Shut up, Starbuck! Uh, however, yes, I agree. That's not necessarily a way that Ishmael looks at the world. Uh, um, ah, ye pantheists. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. We know that he has that pantheist streak, so... Yep, yep. Okay, so... Um, it should be mentioned, he does have a footnote about the polar bear and the white shark, where he's willing to admit certain counter-arguments to what he's saying. Specifically, in the case of the polar bear, he's willing to admit, okay, maybe what's so scary about the polar bear isn't so much that whiteness itself is already scary, and it's more that, um, it's that you have this polar bear, which is a ferocious creature, but it has a, a, a furry white coat, which suggests like innocence it's like Mm -hmm. it's like as if you had like a bear clothed in the fleece of a lamb and that contrast itself is terrifying maybe but he says even if that's the case okay it wouldn't be extra terrifying without the whiteness yeah that's that's such an odd little argument where it's like okay maybe it's that actually white is good and so when a thing is bad and white it's especially uh like it's upsetting and it's like that's you don't think that ishmael yeah, that's just him trying to, like, fence, like, respond to a counter-argument. Mm, yeah. But that's not really... I, I think, again, like, I made that analogy to the the way that uh, Ahab talks about his, you know, terrifying mission. 
with that little lower layer reference because like I really do think that reading this chapter is like peeling an onion. You get closer and closer to this sort of awful unspeakable truth. Um, and just like peeling an onion, it's it's a it's it's an experience of getting closer and closer to something that is disturbing uh, that makes you cry. See, you you say that, but I'm going to be honest. That onion metaphor was ruined for me by the movie Shrek. Sorry. Well, fair enough. Let's move on. <laughs> so the next thing he has to talk about is the albatross, which he mostly talks about in a footnote. Um. Oh, oh, there's one thing about the shark I want to mention. Oh, go on. Talk about the uh, shark. Which is that he specifically, I have no idea if this is true, but he says that the, um, the French name for the white shark, the great white shark, uh, emerges from the term requiem. Um, Jojo's reference here. But the, um, the important part of this is that he frames it as the, the white shark, which moves silently and uh, is you know, so terrifying, is like unto death in its pallor and its silence. And I think that's a really interesting comparison point to have this explicit connection between whiteness and uh, death and silence. Yeah, I'm surprised that my, my copy doesn't have any kind of footnote to tell me whether it is actually the case that the French call the white shark Requin, R-E-Q-U-I-N. Um, some some enterprising person can send us an email about that if they want. Uh, <laughs> Get Requined. Sorry. I, <laughs> cute. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's, he has his own, that, that's his sort of response to people claiming that the white shark is not necessarily just terrifying because of his whiteness, is to say, well, look at the name for it in French. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Mm. And he also says that the, um, uh, quote, not the fierce-fanged tiger in his heraldic coat can so stagger courage as the white-shrouded bear or shark. And I'm just sort of like, I don't know, I've been to a zoo that has both polar bears and sh and tigers. I would be equally terrified by either of those trying to eat me. In fact, I I have certainly had that moment where it looked at me in the glass and I'm like, hmm, yeah, if, if this glass weren't here, I would be a snack. Cool. I'm going to not think about that. Yeah, yeah. It's very clear that if Ishmael went to a zoo, he would be most scared of the white animals, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, like, on some level, he is attempting through this chapter to instill in others the fear of whiteness that mm, he himself yes. experiences. And you can't really do that with mere words, right? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be honest. I don't think you can do this with much other than witnessing the white whale. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And whether we do that in the book, uh, meaningfully through words, that is a complicated question for, uh, for literary theorists far beyond my own ken. Yeah, well... I mean, witness is also always a complicated word, right? Yes. Because you use that to refer to directly seeing something, but then you also use that to refer to, like, telling someone else the word of God. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly a document that witnesses the evil, dark truths of the white whale yep, in a way yep. that people try to witness the truth of the Lord. <laughs> That's true. Also, wow, there's... I hadn't noticed, but there's significant... Uh, there's, like, more footnote in this chapter than there is in, I think nearly any of the others uh in which and it's all about ishmael just talking about white animals being like huh that animal's cool scary but cool yeah so the the what he has to say about albatrosses is um he insists that okay so albatrosses are are continued to be considered to be particularly like 
wonderful and dreadful. And there's a very obvious way to think about this for someone who knows English literature, which is like, oh, yeah, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. That's a poem mm -hmm. all about how terrible and wonderful an albatross is. And Ishmael is utterly convinced that that is not why albatrosses are impressive. It's because of their own inherent qualities, including their whiteness. Yep, he um, he specifies that it wasn't Coleridge first, and and he goes on about how great Coleridge is. To be clear, he talks about how um, how how you know effective that poem is, but also insists that the first time he saw an albatross, he basically wanted to bow down and worship to it. Uh, and he didn't he didn't know that he hadn't read Coleridge's poem, and also he got caught, told it was called a goni or goni, and only later determined that this was in fact the albatross. Uh, so. Clearly, we have double-blind scientific evidence that uh, Ishmael's rever reverence for this large white bird that, if I remember correctly, makes a sound like wark, uh, is in fact deeply majestic and quasi-divine. Yeah, the fact that, like, one of the things that albatrosses are well known for is having undignified landings. And the, the experience that he refers yeah. to having had with an albatross is one where it landed on the deck of a ship he was in, in a gale. And he yeah, came in up a gale, on, no less. He came up onto the deck and he saw this bird on the deck, and it, as you say, it basically made him want to fall down and worship it. I mean, as he literally it, says, "As Abraham before the angels, I bowed myself." He did fall down and worship it. Yeah, which it's interesting because do you remember uh, he said that like that that was not Ahab's reaction to seeing the white whale. It, um, mm. it is interesting that he is willing to say that with this other, frankly, much lesser, like, clearly he has an enormous amount of awe towards the albatross, but it can't yes. be anything like the degree of awe that he has toward Moby Dick. I, it's not yeah. clear to me why the albatross gets to be an angel and Moby Dick has to be... Because it's winged and feathery and I hasn't mean, murdered anyone. Okay, yeah, I guess it's basically that it's not <laughs> actually dangerous, but... Yep, and... He specifically says, through its inexpressible, strange eyes, methought I peeped to secrets which took hold of God. So he's, he's very, he definitely has this moment of, oh, so this is what an angel is. This large bird. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like I understand some of what he's getting at here in that, like, an albatross landing on a ship in the middle of a gale would seem to be, like, I can easily understand experiencing that creature as basically an alien thing, you know? Yes. Because, like, I, this is one of the things that is maybe sometimes kind of weird about looking at birds, is that you can look into their eyes and know that the mind that you might imagine you see staring back at you is, like, not, does not work at all like yours. Birds feel very alien to look at to me sometimes. Yeah, I I think that can be true of many birds. Um, I I think it does depend on the specific bird and the specific person, but yeah, no, birds are, birds can be quite weird, and it's definitely the case that Ishmael had that experience of, like, this is an other. It contains worlds I do not understand. Ah, ah, ah. Yes. Which is, like, also very much, you, you brought up Lovecraft earlier. I think that th there is some sense of the kind of horror that Lovecraft expresses through pure, like, racist allegory. The horror of seeing something that is just not the same type of being as you are at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, Ishmael, yeah. I think, is is enough of a humanist not to have that kind of reaction to an actual human being. But, like, 
it's not wrong to have that type of reaction to an animal necessarily. Yeah, I I think that's a, a complicated thing for animal studies uh, to get, have long, long opinions on that I've interacted with. But I do think that for Ishmael, at least, yes. The um, God, uh, I will say that there's this specific line he has um, about why he bowed down before it, because it its wings were so wide, its body was so white. Quote, uh, in those forever exiled waters, I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and of towns. Like, it's it's literally that in the absence of civilization, he has lost his ability to remember that birds are birds, and not, like, alien angels of an incomprehensible lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, being in the middle of a gale does a lot of things to the mind, clearly. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I've been on ships in, like, mildly hard weather, and it's an experience. Yep. It's... It's hard not to be like, yep, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in like a little sailing thing that is, uh, on a on a water, and if the sailing thing stops working, I will die. And you know, it, it was fine. It was, in fact, it was never in any danger uh, at all. But uh, at the time, I had not had a lot of experience with getting rained on and harder winds while on a boat. Yeah. Uh, there's something I want to point out about his little anecdote of encountering an albatross, which is the thing that he admits about how the albatross actually came to be on the ship. Mm-hmm. Which is that, uh, and, and I, I love that he says, whisper it not and I will tell. Which, of course, ah, yes. <laughs> you wrote it in a book, so you told everyone, Ishmael, and we were about to speak about it aloud on a podcast, but... We're not going to be whispering, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I guess we are following the letter of the law here, but clearly not the spirit. Um, the horrible mystery of the albatross is that the sailors had caught it with like uh, like a a loop of of leather, like a you know. Um, well, no, with a treacherous hook and line, as the fowl floated on the sea, and then they had to decide what to do with it. The loop of leather is what they put around oh, its yes. neck. That's right. They caught it with a hook and a line like you would catch a fish, and then they put a leather, like, strap around its neck, like, just as a, a marker that they had been there at that time. Yes, and, I think um, I think when he says a lettered leathern tally, I think it was literally, like, ship name, date, release bird. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. It's like a label. Not that different from what, like, actual bird scientists do yeah. in the real world. It's just tagging. Although, and uh, he, he can't believe that this object actually remained attached to the albatross. I doubt not that leathern tally meant for man was taken off for, off in heaven when the white fowl flew to join the wing-folding, the invoking and adoring caribbean. Yeah, so he's very literally just saying, an albatross is an angel, I don't know what you're all talking about, that it's a kind of ungainly bird. Yep. <sighs> God, I love long footnotes. They're just the best. I <laughs> Yes. I, I've mentioned that um, I, I love the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, and one of the things I love it for is there's a chapter that is more footnote than chapter. It's a fun, fun way to structure things. It definitely yeah. gives the sense of, like, nested uh, ideas mm. that I was kind of trying to suggest earlier yeah, with yeah, the yeah. metaphor that you made about Shrek. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's not your fault. Uh, there's, yeah, no, there's some very good works that use that footnote structure it's just it's interesting because this isn't used ishmael doesn't do that a lot he does it occasionally with relatively short footnotes and i think a little bit more later in the book but 
for the most part, he's not uh, doing that kind of non-linear aside structure. And it is, I do think it's kind of confusing, like, why does this go into footnotes and everything else doesn't when so much of the structure of this chapter is so confusing and obscure anyway? Um, yeah, I The very I arbitrariness, I think the arbitrariness of it is kind of the point. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I also think it makes Ishmael's argument a little bit weaker, that he's just being kind of flailing about it. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Can't deny that. <sighs> Uh, his next example, and he goes into this one in detail for about a paragraph, um, is uh, something called the White Steed of the Prairies, um, which is like a like a folklore figure. Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest. This is the one that I find the hardest to believe. Well, I mean, I don't think he's saying that it's a real. I, uh, well, okay, obviously Ishmael probably believes that it's a real animal. Um, but I think that this is a real, like, uh, tall tale sort mm. of thing that people told. I don't think he's making it all up, even though asserting that it's all true is his particular thing. I'm using Google. Yeah. Well, I, I Googled this a little bit and confirmed that it is a real thing that exists oh, okay. outside of Moby Dick. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, hmm. But did it exist outside of Moby Dick before Moby Dick was published? I'm pretty sure, yes. It's, it's like, it's a, uh, the, I found, like, um, collections of, like, Trapper's Tales, where the white oh, steed okay. of the prairies is mentioned, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I don't think that this caused it to become folklore, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, he does make statements about, uh, what the w- white horse is to, like, native peoples and i have no idea basically there are certain things that i feel willing to just google quickly and say okay yeah i've confirmed that this is a real thing there are certain things that i don't trust a quick google on and uh the fact that the idea that the white steed of the prairies existed as a folklore idea among like english-speaking americans at some point in the 19th century that i feel pretty certain about the idea that it was also like a pre-existing idea like a, a a pre-colonization folklore idea. That one I don't really know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe. I mean, folklore doesn't come from nowhere, so... Um, yeah, I... I don't know. I just don't want to... I don't want to join in with Ishmael in, like, making a sort of easy assumption that, like, primeval times and, like, native peoples are the same thing. That's, you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's very fair. I certainly don't disagree. I'm just... Hmm... Yeah. Well, so moving oh, on from that explanation, he, he then this is sort of a turn where he says, OK, we're talking about these animals that have like a whiteness and it makes them sort of strange, but glorious and like awesome. Uh, but what about the cases where whiteness actually is a bad thing or actually is understood to be a bad thing? Um, so he moves on from here to. Uh, talking about, for example, albinism or the mm-hmm. power of the dead. Um, and I think it's worth noting, um, I mean, Ishmael is basically repeating the conventional idea that, like, to be albino is to be scary and, like, yeah. bad, which is itself 
much like what you were saying earlier about how it doesn't make a ton of sense that Ishmael would just support the idea of like imperial whiteness and like mm-hmm. racial whiteness as good things. It doesn't make a ton of sense that Ishmael would join in on like culture's hatred of people who happen to be born with a certain like condition of their skin, yeah. right? Yeah, but, I mean, I he's it's he's not so much expressing that they're like bad people. He's expressing that they're like inherently hideous to the eye, which I find it believable Ishmael might hold that position without necessarily thinking that these are bad people or thinking that it is justified for people to be afraid of them. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I wanted to mention that, like, the the fact that he brings up both, like, albinism and the paleness that death brings to the skin, these are both cases of, of whiteness in skin, mm-hmm. uh, which is yes. considered, culturally speaking, not good. And, like, Ishmael is, I think... I think he is under some effort here to point out cases in which white skin might not actually be something that culture considers so great, basically. Yeah, I I mean, the thing is, I think that these are also uh, interspersed with things like talking about the like white caps of storms in the um, in the yes. white squall uh, or um, some odd historical references to specific uh like groups that associated with white as a symbolism, but were bad, or yeah, he talks about murderers. something, something called. Uh, he's talking about a, a a medieval historical group called the White Hoods of Ghent, who uh, murdered a government official who was intended to arrest him, arrest them rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, mm. so. He also references in Revelation that uh, death rides a white horse or a pale horse. Yes, that's right. When personified by the evangelist, as he puts it. So at this point, he pretty much says that the point is proven. Uh, Therefore, in his other moods, symbolize whatever grand or gracious thing he will by whiteness, no man can deny that in its profoundest idealized significance, it calls up a peculiar apparition to the soul. That's him pretty much saying, okay, whiteness calls up a peculiar apparition to everyone. Settled. Yeah, I mean, I I think his argument is basically, hey, when you imagine a ghost, is it white? Hmm? Hmm? Like, yeah. he's, he's definitely leaning very hard on that side of things, on the death ghost spectral element. The hauntological whiteness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so having, as he claims, uh asserted very clearly that, yes, whiteness is particularly scary to people. He's now saying, all right, how are we going to account for it? How are we going to analyze this? Why is that the case? Yep, um, and he he tries to suggest the idea that, um, you know, to the man of untutored ideality, so someone who has not, like, learned these associations officially, who is not, yeah. you know, um, over-educated the way Ishmael is, why are they, why would they find a white instance of a thing spookier than the normally colored instance? Yeah, he's basically having to bring up here the idea of a person who does not have any cultural associations to suggest. To suggest? Sorry, I was just pausing to let that buzzing sound go by. Um oh. I don't know if you could hear it at all. Maybe you couldn't. No, I couldn't. Sorry about that. Oh, it's no problem. Just be a weird little blip in the middle of our podcast. Anyway, um... Do you want to count back in? No, no, there's no need. Um, Okay. 
that's not how editing works. Fair enough. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so as I was just saying, he, um, he, he has to, it, he's trying to get at an idea of like a pre-cultural terror of whiteness. And in order to do yes. that, he has to bring up a person who doesn't have cultural associations, well, which is... He does it a little bit differently than that, and I think it's worth noting. He um, he specifically says, uh, he specifically tries to find people who don't have cultural associations with a specific instance, so or who should have sort of blanket associations for the, same, for the white and non-white virgins. So, for example, he talks about, you know, to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the middle American states, which, well, excuse you, Ishmael, um, I'm not a Protestant, but... Um, I don't think he was I'm, talking about you. I think he was talking about people from, like, Virginia or, like, Maryland. Oh, yeah, right. Cause we, I don't... No, Wisconsin existed by the point this was being written. But, um, anyways, I think it might have been a territory. I cannot remember. Anyways, but no, Wisconsin is, um, you know, to the, to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the middle American states, why does the passing mention of a white friar or a white nun evoke such an eyeless statue in the soul? Like... You know, the idea being that this is someone who, for a friar or a nun, have no associations, but a white friar or a white nun will immediately be a more spectral image to them than just a friar or nun. Yeah, and it should men- I sh- it's worth mentioning he's referring to specific orders of mo- of monks and nuns, the Carmelite and Cistercian orders, according to my footnote. Mm, Carmelite. Uh, oh yeah, it really is about the Midwest, huh? What? Oh, <laughs> oh, because pronouncing caramel like that? Oh. <laughs> Wait, is that... That's a Midwestern thing. Is it only a Midwestern thing? Really? I mean, it's not only... Pronouncing it caramel is a Northeastern thing. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I will go for both. It's delicious either way. I agree. But I, as a lifelong Northeasterner, much like Ishmael, I will always think of it as caramel. I have Northeastern family, but yes. Um, so... <sighs> uh... Yeah, but so he is basically trying to suggest that, like, when even when people don't know why it should be particularly scary to hear about a white thing, they are particularly scared of it. Yes, he also and... refers to, like, the white mountains of New Hampshire, which he thinks are more ghostly in the soul than, say, Virginia's Blue Ridge. Or, or the, the White, white Sea. sea. Eh? <laughs> Uh, exerting such a spectralness over the fancy, while that of the Yellow Sea lulls us with mortal thoughts of long, lacquered, mild afternoons on the waves. I'm just like, oh, I want to go sailing. But um, I think my favorite is the bit where he talks about how Slenderman is scary. Uh, go on. Uh, uh, Or to choose a wholly unsubstantial instance, purely addressed to the fancy, why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, does the tall, pale man of the heart's forests... Uh, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the Blocksburg? So that, that's Slenderman. I, I... Monsieur Slenderman. I mean, he's referring to a folkloric figure from, Yes, like... Slenderman. <laughs> ben. It's at least analogous that his argument is that the reason but Slenderman, Slenderman or is not white. Slenderman is wearing a black suit. That's, yes, like, one he's... of his known qualities. But he has, like, a perfectly pale white face. That's a whole deal. Okay, okay, that's like, fair. I guess my association with a with one Slenderman is uh, that uh, such a slender individuals 
much more notable for the like shock white pallor and facelessness. Yeah. Which results in a in a God, I'm talking like Ishmael. Results in a, more of a blank canvas of that pure pallid color. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I I have no doubt that if Ishmael were informed about Slenderman, he would immediately be like, "Oh yeah, it's because his face is white and not because his suit is black that people find him scary." I like the thing is I basically agree with that particular statement about Slenderman specifically at the internet horror thing. God. I can't believe I brought this up. I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. I think it's good that you've been made to admit that there is something that's particularly scary just because it's white. It's particularly scary because he doesn't have a face. I know, but that's that's how and the whiteness jump is scares. expressed. Also, yes, yes, fine. There are a lot of things that are scary about Slenderman that have nothing to do with color. Clearly. Oh. Um. God, we have we have invoked the outdated internet meme. Yes, yes, we really have. Um. <sighs> And, uh, now he does, uh, say, he does sort of admit that most people do not think that whiteness is the primary thing that makes all these scary white objects so scary. Um, you know, I I know that to the common apprehension, this phenomenon of whiteness is not confessed to be the prime agent in exaggerating the terror of objects otherwise terrible. So he's like, all right, fine, guys, I, I admit that you are all probably telling me these things are scary for other reasons, Ishmael. Um, <laughs> like Slenderman. But uh, he he does say that, to his mind, that the terror of certain objects almost entirely consists of whiteness, especially, especially when exhibited under any form at all approaching to muteness or universality. Mm-hmm. So this, yes. I think, is where he's getting very close to the deepest... Yes, to, to the... I think this is, he's starting to actually express his, like, real thoughts here, as opposed to just sort of gesturing at culture and saying, look, w- white things. So, and I think that it's very noticeable that as he's trying to get towards, like, the, the deepest expression of what is so scary about whiteness, he starts talking about experiences that a sailor would have. Yes, he starts using maritime examples. Um... And I think this is starting to get at maybe something that might be somewhat real. Uh, the two examples that he has referring to, to muteness and universality, or apparently, is um, he talks about white water, like choppy mm-hmm. water. And he talks yes, about... Yes, white caps and specifically the idea that a sailor... Oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you, it's okay. The... You should finish what you were saying. The idea that a sailor who sees white water, which means rough water, which means there's something, some kind of turbulence, even if the sounding line tells them that there's nothing to be afraid of and it's just uh, some kind of conflux of currents, is never going to trust that and is always going to keep being uh, concerned that the ship is about to get a hole in the side from some unseen rock. And that there's no way, that basically a sailor is never going to trust white water, even if every other sign says things are fine. And he does say that, like, you know, this is a case where it is the sight of the white water rather than the fear of actual rocks, right? Because you have a better way of knowing whether there are rocks, which is the sounding line. That's mm-hmm. And yet, where is the mariner who will tell thee, Sir, it was not so much the fear of striking hidden rocks as the fear of that hideous whiteness that so stirred me. So, like, 
he is basically saying there is something that is terrifying about white water in itself, even if it doesn't mean the chance of actually crashing. But no one will actually admit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and his second example is um, is just snow, ice. Um, and the uh, f- sorry, go on. Well, and in particular, he's saying that perhaps like viewing a totally snow white landscape is not so scary in certain contexts, but to a sailor on the Antarctic, it is like truly horrible. Um, so, like, to the native Indian of Peru, the continual sight of the snow-houted Andes conveys naught of dread, except perhaps... So, he, he's saying, like, okay, the sight of, like, the Andes, the, the, the caps of the Andes Mountains that are always covered in snow, or the sight of, like, a prairie that's totally covered in snow, those may not be inherently super terrifying, but the sight yeah, of the Antarctic waters is. Yeah, he specifies that they're only terrifying inasmuch as people imagine themselves lost there. That, like, there's a there's a very material terror to them. But then his specific example in the Antarctic Seas is, I believe, if I'm, remember, if I'm understanding correctly, he's talking about one of the optical illusions that can occur on an ocean. Uh, something like a Fata Morgana um, or um, other similar effects where basically you get the combination of heat haze or just simply of of cold air and the reflective qualities of of sky and water can produce sort of reflecting or infinite landscapes and in this case he's talking about you know instead of rainbows speaking hope and solace to his misery view the sailor half shipwrecked views what seems a boundless churchyard grinning upon him with its lean ice monuments and splintered crosses and i think what he's describing there is again it's like the fata morgana um, I don't actually know what a Fata Morgana is. You'll have oh, to a Fata Morgana that. is a is a kind of um, optical illusion that occurs on the ocean. I can't remember the specific cause, but basically, it causes objects at the around the horizon to be sort of mirrored up over the horizon and like distorted, mm. so that you get these strange. I mean, it's the Fata Morgana is like the. It's also called called. It's like a castle shape appearing at the edge of the horizon um, and sticking up over it. You also get a little bit of this on a um, on a hot road if you're driving. Oh sure, um, like a. I, I'm familiar with hot road mirages. Yes, so a Fata Morgana is like that over the entirety of the. Um, of the distant sky, and often it'll produce, again, like, sort of castle shapes or, um, uh, like, you know, vague, like, ship, uh, reflections, and the result is a very, it's very strange, but it's, and it's very unique, um, and so I think that that's the kind of thing that's being talked about here, where the horizon and the ocean, and, because he mentions rainbows, which are an optical illusion, um, produce, this immense uh, sort of coloration, except because all it's working with is endless whiteness, it's just reflecting whiteness on whiteness so that it seems to go on forever. Yeah, I think you're probably right about the visual effect he's referring to. Because he describes it as some infernal trick of ledger domain and the powers of frost and air. This isn't just seeing a frozen ocean. This is a frozen ocean reflecting back in itself and between the you know the sky and the sea such that it seems to be infinite yeah um so he's basically insisted through both of these examples that the visual effect of whiteness surrounding a ship is particularly awful in a way that maybe a a whole holy white landscape wouldn't be in another context Mm -hmm. um and uh he then says uh, uh you know um maybe 
maybe you're saying to me, okay, this is just you being afraid of everything, Ishmael. Thou surrenderest to a hypo, which my, uh, my, um, book, uh, cites the word hypo as meaning depressive or anxious impulse. Um, mm. although you gave another possible gloss on it, which I think is also good, uh, which is that it could just be short for hypothesis. Thou surrenderest to a hypo in the sense of you are right. letting yourself get carried away with a hypothesis. Did I suggest that? I swear you said that. Maybe I made it up. I- I I don't know. I don't remember saying that because I thought that it was hypochondria. Oh, yes. Right. Like that kind of, like hypo in that sense of like a, you know, um, assuming that there's, it's it's much worse or much further uh, than is reasonably justified. Yeah. I think, I think it's coming from a similar, I think he must be abbreviating some other psychological term, probably not the same as hypochondria, but probably using the prefix mm-hmm. hypo in a similar way. Yep, yep. Um, or perhaps he's surrendering to a hypostasis, the underlying reality of the gnostic uh, gnostic forces. I mean, that's mm, that's mm, that mm, would certainly mm, be mm, the claim mm, that I was making earlier when I was trying to say that there really is something <laughs> terrible in whiteness. That would be surrendering to a hypostasis and not to a hypothesis or uh, a hypochondria or anything else. That's very true. Um, <sighs> and he gets into. I think this is also. You know, we talked about how he's starting to get into the real shit. This is the even realer shit as we go on. He says, okay, fine. You think I'm just making this shit up? What, why is it that, um, basically he gives an example of a a cult who has been raised in Vermont, far away from all, like, far away from the prairie, basically. If you shake a white buffalo hide... Not a white not a buffalo, white one. Not a fresh white one. He doesn't hide. specify the whiteness of it. But, yes. Uh, although white he's... buffalo are important. Like, they, they sure, do have but... meaningful significance, so I think it's... Sure, but he's he's just talking about the scent of the buffalo hide. The, the cult doesn't even have to see it. He's talking about a sense impression from the hide. Yes, that's right. And he's basically saying, okay, if you have a cult that has been raised and has never met a buffalo, if it smells buffalo, it will start. Because... In his imagination, buffalo and horses are sort of natural enemies. And I mean, I frankly, I think he probably had more cause to see buffalo and horses interact, or at least Melville did, in than I have ever had in my life. So I'm not going to double uh, double guess him here. Yeah, no, second guess him. Uh, I mean, I think I think it is true that like sometimes animals who have never encountered another animal will react to the sound, the smell of that particular type of animal, anyway. Because, you know, yep. animal instinct does do things like that. Um, yep. And it's you can not... tell it's a, it's a bunch of hormones or whatever from an animal that it doesn't know and that seems like a big one. Yes, but his way of reading this is, Here thou beholdest, even in a dumb brute, the instinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world. Yes. So to him, when an animal is afraid of the scent of another type of animal... That's because it somehow knows that that other type of animal wants to hurt it. Yeah, I... Somehow, evolution. But no, um, no, it's... He's definitely arguing that there are... There are underlying realities of the world that animals are understand instinctually and that humans perhaps understand instinctually as well without admitting to it um, that drive and uh, organize our thoughts. Sorry about that buzzing. Oh, it's fine. I can't actually hear it. Don't worry about it. Oh, fantastic. Um, um, so, yeah, I want to read another section. Uh, mm-hmm. He says, 
speaking speaking of uh, this this cult example that he's just given thus then the muffled rollings of a milky sea the bleak rustlings of the festooned frosts of mountains the desolate shiftings of the wind-rowed snows of prairies all these to ishmael are as the shaking of that buffalo robe to the frightened colt though neither knows where lies the nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints yet with me as with the colt somewhere those things must exist so he is well, oh, finish this. Finish okay. Finish the though paragraph. in many of its though in many of its aspects, this visible world seems formed in love. The invisible spheres were formed in fright. So this is a really obscure section, I think. But he is saying something along the lines of like, there I, exists evil out there in the world, and yeah, I, I can sense I it in whiteness. Yeah, I don't think it's it's obscure at all. He's simply saying there is something. Whiteness, of which whiteness is the sign or possibly the quality. Whiteness might even be said to be the skin of this thing. And when that skin is brought near Ishmael, he instinctually recognizes that there is something, he said the demonism of the world, and he's previously used that to mean, you know, there is evil in the world. There are forces out there that are um, destructive and unkind and have no, uh, you know, no, no mercy in them. There is no goodness in them. And so, and he further says that, you know, even if, you know, oh yes, the visible world, the world we're supposed to know is formed in love by a loving God, yet the forces that we cannot witness, the forces that we don't uh, have our eyes on, those are evil. There is evil in the world, it's just that we don't know what it looks like or we can't recognize it, and this whiteness is the sign of that evil, or again, it's skin. I guess the thing that was a little obscure or ambiguous to me about the last sentence there is that when he says the invisible spheres were formed in fright, is he saying that God, when he formed the invisible spheres, was afraid of evil? Or is he saying that God himself, as he formed those spheres, was an evil, frightening thing? Were the spheres resonating in fright, or was the creator in fright when he made it? I think that... This particular statement doesn't actually involve the creator directly. It says, seems formed in love, meaning, you know, this world's hate love or to be, you know, sort of inclined towards it, yet in its, uh, in its invisible aspects, it's, its true and underlying aspects, it was formed in fright. It is something that we should be afraid of. That makes sense. I guess to me, was formed is a really interesting way of phrasing it because it is talking about creation in a way that, yeah, as you say, leaves the creator out. But I think Ishmael is not someone who believes that creation just sort of happened. So to me, there is an implication that almost in creating the world, God was afraid of something. Mm, I I just think that's... Yeah, yeah, no, you don't no. Have I, to I agree. just think that's that's slightly. I really do think that the fright is the fright of the creatures, not of the creator. Mm, that may be. I think that, that it's be. it's that it because remember that Ishmael is someone who, to the visible world, is full of love. Like he is someone who finds excuses to like everything that he runs across and to justify the ways of all the people he knows. He never has a negative word for someone. Yet he feels that there is this demonism in the world, this thing that when it pushes close to him, he cannot help but be in terror of it. Yeah. But it is worth saying, even with having spoken of the demonism of the world, he still doesn't feel that we've solved the mystery of whiteness. 
Because we still haven't explained why it is simultaneously the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, and yet also this, like, terrifying apparition. Like, we haven't explained why whiteness has all these positive associations if it's so terrifying. I have a theory. Well, I think <laughs> Ishmael does too, right? Yep, yep. So, it, at this point, and I think it's notable that at this point he's arguing purely by, um, or not purely, but primarily by uh, rhetorical questions rather than statements. Yes. I think this is the part that Ishmael is, like, least certain about. It's the most, like, mysterious to him. Um, but he suggests that maybe that the indefiniteness of whiteness, the fact that there is, that a, a white image is, like, sort of general and, like, unspecific, that that suggests infinity and, like, space and the Milky Way. Um, and annihilation. And, yes, therefore, yeah, like, death in the ultimate... It, the, the, when you think about the depths of space, you also think about annihilation. Yes. Is that what whiteness means? Or could it also be that whiteness is somehow, because of what light is, it is both the absence of color and the combination of all colors? Um, oh, you skipped one. I skipped one? Yes. I tried to go skipped... from the white depths of the Milky Way to the, as in essence, whiteness is not so much a color. What? what? No, but you... um. Oh, I thought you were skipping to the theory of the natural philosophers. Sorry, please continue. No, no, I was about to move on to the theory of the natural philosophers, which is, I think, part of the talking about color and whiteness being all colors in one. Um, do you want to explain the theory, actually? Because I think you might oh, have a slightly... Sure. I mean, the, th the thing that I thought you'd skipped was this phrase, a colorless all-color of atheism from which we shrink. Yes. And yeah, that... So... That specifically is important because I think that one of the possibilities, and I don't think he disambiguates this, one of the possibilities Ishmael is raising here is the possibility that white is terrifying and at the same time holy because maybe there, maybe that blankness, that indefiniteness, that muteness is what lies behind the world. And he expands on this with this uh, color theory, this idea that, um, you know, the other theory of the natural philosophers that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, uh, goes on for just a long list of nice colors, are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without. The idea that, well, you only see colors from light, and color is not an inherent quality of the object, it is a thing we see in the object, uh, a particular interpretation of the reflection and tinging of light. And that... Um, so as a result, uh, quote, all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. Um, and that if you can look past all of these delights, all of these colors, you'll see an empty blank universe, quote, palsied universe lies before us a leper, and like willful travelers in Lapland who refuse to wear colored and coloring glasses upon their eyes, so the wretched infidel gazes himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And that is, I think, uh, fascinating, because this is Ishmael suggesting that maybe, maybe, there is no benevolent force behind the world. There is no uh, unifying goodwill. You know, the, the visible spheres seem formed in love, but... 
The invisible ones seem formed in fright. The charnel house behind that colored facade seems white, pallid, without moral quality. That's what I think Ishmael is getting at by the end here, the hypothesis that he can only state so, so indirectly and elaborately, because it's so counter to his basic way of being, his, his pantheistic uh, inclinations, that maybe the world is simply cruel and pointless, that it is not unified by any, uh, you know, uh, intention or aesthetics but that we are simply attempting to see those so that we can bear this immense empty whiteness. And that's, I think, the muteness and universality of whiteness that he suggests. That perhaps when you're on a boat in the middle of a white ocean, a frozen ocean, an endless churchyard, which is to say an endless graveyard, uh, you are in fact perceiving things as they are. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that his his fear on some level is that the thing that he is sensing is a no thing, is 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 an absence. And this is, I think, why he has to insist so loudly that there truly is a malevolent force, because he has this fear and he kind of is aware that it could be it could be nameless dread. Like mm-hmm. when people use the word dread, especially in a philosophical context, this is kind of, I think, like, this is an existential philosophical idea sometimes, um, that, like, dread is what the fear of death is, not something else, because mm-hmm. what that means is, like, a feeling of fear when there is, when the, when there is no object. Yes, it's, it's also right? often, in, in Sartre, it's termed nausea, the idea yes. that we can't have genuine, normal fear of death, because we don't have the beginning of an understanding of what it's like to experience death. So we can't actually be afraid of it the way we'd be afraid of, like, getting shot or, uh, you know, afraid of, on a simpler level, afraid of rejection. We know what those are, but it's it's behind a veil. And I will say, I think that, that this atheistic read on Moby Dick as a whole and this possibility is not sort of the final, um, the final word in it, but I think that that is something whiteness means to Ishmael that he can't quite describe, is some kind of nihilism or uh, even possibly not necessarily nihilism or, or atheism in a literal sense. There might be a belief in some kind of force, but the idea that there isn't some kind of unifying harmony, but rather a universe that is not differentiated, not arranged, but simply present and, in fact, cruel in its presence for its absolute indifference towards uh, Ishmael, towards Ahab, towards everyone on the Pequod. And that indifference is precisely what Ahab personally takes so as an insult. Or, well, that indifference and also the fact that he believes that indifference is aimed specifically at him as an insult. And I think this is perhaps raising the possibility of the alternative. And that's what leads so amazingly to this final line. And of all these things, the albino whale was the symbol Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt? And he's asking there, the white whale is the thing behind all of that, or the thing that can be connected to all of this. It is the personification of this impersonifiable uh, absence or lack in the world, this demonism. Surely then, it's better to hunt the white whale than to simply live in that universe without that object. At least that's, that's one reading. And again, 
Ishmael is not fully explaining this. Ishmael is being elusive and indirect and difficult precisely because he cannot express the dread that he feels. He cannot express why whiteness is so overwhelming to him. I mean, because he's bad at expressing things. This is a quality of Ishmael. Yes. But yeah, I definitely think that, like, it makes a lot of sense that Ishmael, given the choice between an uncaring, unstructured universe and a universe that is structured but has a, a, you know, a Satan in it of some kind. Yeah. He chooses the latter. Yeah. And he is spending this whole chapter attempting to convince us of the latter, attempting to convince us that whiteness has meaning, that it isn't meaninglessness that he's afraid of, but that there is a particular... That there is content in the idea yes. of whiteness. Yes. That that this color does not that and I think this is this is also, you know, in, implicit to this is that, you know, we've I've I throw around the word Gnostic a lot, but I do mean it the to say, as we have seen, is that it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in things the most appalling to mankind. That is because I don't think I don't think Ishmael as an individual is an atheist, but I do think no. that the possibility is occurring to him that the world was created almost atheistically or at least cruel and meaningless in its way. You might say uh, mindlessly or ignorantly, and that perhaps the Christian deity, the shaper of the world, can be directly associated with that meaninglessness, that ignorance, and the white whale is sort of the incarnation of that within the world. And I think that that is a very Gnostic statement. It's very much stating that, you know, God is the demiurge kind of thing. But it's also Ishmael attempting to hold two ideas in his head at the same time, which are divinity and atheism, which are, uh, you know, his you know strong belief in some kind of spiritual or at least some kind of religious force or cause, and also the nearness of the whale, which is so opposed to that. Yeah, I also think it's interesting in, in your bringing in Gnosticism here that he's associating white not with the Christian's deity itself, but with the veil of that mm, deity. Yes. So he is, I think, gesturing toward the idea that maybe if the if if whiteness is associated with the being that created the universe, then perhaps there's a being behind that being which is mm. veiled by that being. Right? Yes, I, th- I think that is present. Like, I think... As much as Ishmael is currently dabbling in a kind of atheism or a kind of maltheism, uh, dabbling in this fear of, of the whale as the, you know, the ultimate symbol, I think he is also at the same time not someone who's ever going to let go of the possibility that somewhere out there in his pantheistic uh, framework there's some kind of benevolence, because he clearly feels that pretty, uh, pretty strongly for himself, at least. Yeah. I also think it's worth mentioning that the, this idea of an uncaring universe, this is one that I think is hard to avoid from a pantheistic point of view. Mm. Like, if you're going to look at every single thing that you see in the world and say, this is of God, you, it's very difficult not to come to the conclusion that God does not care at all about you as an individual, right? Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's fair. I think that, I mean, I... I think that plenty of pantheists have been of the the visible world is formed in love persuasion, like the idea that ultimately all of this is harmonious. Yes. But I certainly think that Ahab's making his real hard argument in the opposite direction. Yes, and it certainly has, like, had... A, I, it, it, it is interesting, I think, that Ishmael puts this 
chapter here when he has just heard of the white whale. Like, these are the impressions that are apparently brought up in Ishmael's head just by being told the legend of Moby Dick and being told mm-hmm. that they're going to hunt it. Yeah. This is not what he is, what is brought to his mind by, like, witnessing yes, the whale. He is That'll not, happen later. Yes, he's not yet admitting in his memoir that he has seen the white whale and that any terror of the white whale that he has has a very good reason for it in personal experience. No, he's framing it entirely in the abstract whiteness of the whale. Yeah, and it, it 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 is like you do have to wonder like would his later experiences or would other reasons, you know, uh to be very much a devil's advocate here, if Ishmael is trying to argue, "Oh, I had good reason for joining in with everyone and agreeing to fight the white whale." Well, yeah, your good reason, Ishmael, is that you were trapped on the Pequod and you had absolutely nowhere else to go. Of course you convinced yourself that the white whale represented the demonism in the world because you had no choice. Well, also, he's very impressionable, and Ahab is very loud and very charismatic. That's true. Like, also, I should say, there is one other choice, but the other choice is to be Starbuck, and we yeah. see what he thinks of that choice. God, just... I, Starbuck is often figured, in my understanding, in readings of the book, as, like, the the noble or the, the, um, like the, the virtuous figure in the crew, but I just cannot help but just want to wedgie Starbuck. I just want to... Just, just push him and just be mean to him. And I swear, this isn't purely some kind of anti-Christian sentiment. It's that Starbuck himself doesn't stand up for the position that he claims to hold. He is constantly just sort of going, eh, well, you shouldn't do this. And, you know, even his opposition to Ishmael as his first mate was incredibly tepid and unwilling to go against the crowd. Sorry, his... His opposition to Ahab. Yes, his opposition mate, right? to Ahab is Ahab's first mate. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, it's okay. I've made that mistake before, I'm pretty sure. It's easy <laughs> to make for some reason. Yeah, uh, two syllables, I don't know. But, um, no, Starbuck is, uh, he's often right in the sense that, no, it's probably better not to go, you know, get yourself killed by the white whale or whatever. It's probably better not to drag people along to fight Satan. But also... He's not doing, he's not like trying to stage a mutiny against Ahab or trying to convince people. No, he's going off on his own to go, <laughs> Ahab, yeah. he's so powerful and so wrong, but I can't do anything about him. It's just like, get over yourself and, you know, you're, you're just going to go all the way to the end of this, constantly going, but I'm not involved. Yeah. Sorry, this is just turned Ishmael... into Starbuck hate. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. I mean, listen, I'm all here for a good two-minute Starbuck hate, but uh, <laughs> I, I I, think it's very interesting and, like, notable that, like, Ishmael does have what you could call selfish reasons for convincing himself that the white whale really does have meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really possible in the way that Ishmael really wants it to be to separate out the true meaning of the white whale and its symbolism from like everyday associations and, and human reasons, I guess, for being scared of it or human reasons for hating it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, Ishmael really wants it to be a a purely sublime operation, but Ahab lost a leg. And on some level, he's just real angry at the big animal that took it. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, you might say that this is Ishmael trying to argue why he, as a person with no um, 
uh, leg in that race with no particular hatred of whales or injury from whale or even a particular emotional connection to Ahab prior to the moment Ahab makes the speech. He's barely seen Ahab before this, yet he's completely caught up in this, and I think he's searching for reasons why Ahab's quest is universal to humanity, that Ahab is not merely... You know, we had that whole, uh, you know, uh, conceit, that whole um, elaborate visual metaphor and stylistic uh, description of um, Ahab's connection to that, like, you know, Adam on a throne, that, that essence of humanity. I think a lot of it is Ishmael is very convinced of Ahab's journey and is trying to make it clear to the reader why this isn't just Ahab's revenge, that the desire to strike Moby Dick, to strike through the mask, is entirely universal to humanity, and Ahab merely reveals it to people. And I think, on some level, a question of the book is, is is that true? Is Ahab really a representative of real human universal grievance against, um, against Moby Dick and against the world? Or is he just really charismatic and the captain of the ship, and therefore you find a way to agree with him or you end up Starbuck? Yeah. I think that all makes sense. Um, I don't think I have really much more to say about the whiteness of the whale, honestly. No, it's surprisingly, for something that's so intense uh, in some ways, I think it's a lot less uh, generative than, you know, the Moby Dick chapter or even some of the other chapters, just because on some level we're kind of, I mean, the way, the visual metaphor that came to mind for me was the generalized metaphor, it's not really visual, I'm talking. But um, the metaphor that came to mind for me is that we're standing on a frozen surface. It's white, it's sheer, there's very little There's very little to grip on, and we're sort of uh, trying to stand upright and walk forward, and it's not giving us a lot to purchase. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've just placed me in the Antarctic, and I am now feeling a nameless terror, so I feel the need to reassert our mission here. Well, you know what they say, Tekalili. What? Sorry, it's um, from, I think it's from the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which if you want something that's super racist about, and also all about whiteness, Poe's Arthur Gordon Pym is definitely involved in that. But there's like the weird, the weird cry from out of the ice at the ultimate Antarctic ends is Tekalili, which I believe both Dunsany and Lovecraft later used. Ah, okay. Uh, sure. I believe you. The, the phrase, the, the conventional <laughs> phrase that I was about to suggest was, uh, what, what tune is it you pull for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 